Thank you for your singing this morning. We take your Bibles out and we'll turn to Revelation 14. Revelation 14. The book of Revelation is a message from Jesus Christ that is about Jesus Christ. If any of us are going to have a hope of understanding the message of Revelation, we need to look for Jesus because this book is all about Jesus. As we've gone through the study of this book, I've not asked you to bring out a piece of paper and draw a horizontal line and put some tick marks because I'm going to help you fill out a timeline. Instead, I've tried to point you to Jesus because that's what the text points you to. And I believe as you look at him, you'll understand what the book means. If you trace where he is and what he is doing, you'll understand what the book is about. So from the very beginning, we see Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, glorified in chapter 1. He stands among the candlesticks, observing them. He stands among the churches, observing their conduct, telling them what he commends, telling them what he condemns. He is Lord of his church. He makes the will of God known to the church. And then one day in the future, as chapters 4 and following show, one day he will approach the Father, receive the scroll, and begin to remove the seals of that scroll. And as he does so, he will enact judgments, and he will initiate conflict with the usurpers in the world. And great judgments will come. We see that primarily from chapters 4 through 16. As you see him in chapters 17 through about 20, you see him coming to conquer. You see him in chapter 19 coming on a white horse. You see him coming with sword. You see him coming to judge and to make war because he will not only initiate conflict, but he will win the conflict with the world to bring about the establishment of God's kingdom. And in the end, we see Christ joining his people to himself. And that's what we look forward to. So to understand this book, you need to look for Jesus. If I had a Bible I was willing to mark up in my lap on a Sunday morning service, studying the book of Revelation, I would circle any time the passage talked about Jesus because he is the focal point of this book. And as we get into chapter 14, the end of it today, we will again see him. And that is my desire to magnify him as the text does. So my dear brothers and sisters in the Lord, today let's consider the two harvests when Christ swings the sickle. Father, as we give ourselves to your word today, we pray that you would give us, Lord, more and more of your character as we are changed by what we see in your word. And Father, we humbly ask for that in Jesus' name. Amen. I have had the pleasure of harvesting potatoes just a couple of times since I have moved to New York. And while potatoes can be harvested by hand, I have been assigned a spot on the harvester. 
Now, for those of you who don't know, a potato harvester scoops up the row, moves the potatoes along conveyor belts uh, to an arm, and that arm then drops the potatoes into a wagon that's nearby. And as the potatoes and the dirt and everything that's scooped up go through the conveyor belts, much of the dirt separates from the potatoes before it goes to the end and is dropped into the wagon. But just before the end and before that arm, there is one last conveyor belt where the stones need to be removed from the potatoes. The stones have to be removed and the potatoes will be left to go on the belt and go in the wagon. And that's where I was positioned. My one task was to remove the stones and allow the potatoes to pass on. Well, that's how potato harvesting works. I didn't know that till I came. Now, as we go into Revelation 14, this is a harvest story. It includes different individuals using different methods to harvest something very unique. No potatoes in this passage. Look at verse 15. The harvest is a harvest of the earth. And today we need to explore what is the harvest of the earth and why does it matter to each one of us? The harvest of the earth. Well, what is that? What does it mean to harvest the earth? Well, let's think about the context for a moment. This is where I want you to take your Bible and turn back to Revelation 10. Revelation 10, this is where the angel descends from heaven, stands on the land and sea, and says something that we need to remember. Verse 7, it says, In the days, that is in the time period, of the trumpet call that will be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God will be fulfilled, just as he announced to his servants the prophets. So that is what is coming. During a time period, the mystery of God will be fulfilled. Turn the page to chapter 11, verse 15. The seventh angel blows his trumpet. And then what is celebrated in heaven? We see further down in that verse, heaven sings, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. You see, the kingdom is what has not yet been fulfilled, but it will be fulfilled during the time period of the seventh trumpet. You say, well, what is that going to require? What has to change between now and then for that to take place? Notice what, the, notice what is sung in verse 18. Chapter 11, verse 18, it says this, The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your saints, the prophets, in the, your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. You see, for the kingdom to come, the time of judgment must come first. And that time will be a time of reward and destruction. You say, why would someone, why would anyone deserve to be destroyed? And the answer is that they have wrongly responded to Jesus Christ. And what that shows each one of us is how significant Jesus Christ is. 
You see, Jesus Christ can be honored as the Creator, the Savior, and the Lord. He can be scorned as overbearing, weak, and insignificant. But we, what we can know for sure is the way you choose to respond to Him is the most important matter in life. The song in heaven in verse 18 is that the nations rage against Him, and they will be destroyed, and those who serve Him will be rewarded. And that's what is previewed in the two harvests at the close of Revelation 14. Two simple points this morning. The first is that Christ will gather the righteous. He will reap the harvest of the earth, verses 14 through 16. So look in your Bibles at Revelation 14. I'll begin reading in verse 14. John speaking here, Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud was one like the Son of Man. This is the last reference in the entire Bible to the Son of Man. And we saw in the first chapter of this book who that Son of Man was. Seated on the cloud was one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Of course, this one who is like the son of man is Jesus Christ. His position on a cloud points to his deity because back in Daniel 7, as the margin says, this is a reference to Jesus Christ, who with the clouds of heaven comes like one, a son of man. His golden crown on his head points to his authority because it is the Son of Man in Daniel 7.14 who has given dominion and glory and a kingdom. And in kingdoms, the king wears a crown. He has the authority. And then we see the sharp sickle in his hand that points to his responsibility to judge the earth. Now you see it on the screen there. A sickle is a harvesting tool. Or crops like grain or wheat and grapes. The picture here in this verse seems to be harvesting grain. You might know that from something like Matthew 3.12 where it says this. John the Baptist saying this, His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. You see, his responsibility is made known to us by what's in his hands. He will reap the earth. That is to show us he will judge the earth. He is going to discern between the wheat and the chaff. And this is what John is to behold. It's what we're supposed to behold with him. We need to realize that Christ has the right to judge the world because the one seated on the cloud has a sickle in his hand. You say, why, did, why would Jesus do this? Why would Jesus be a judge? Well, we can answer that question in John's Gospel, the fifth chapter. There are two reasons. First, Jesus is the judge because that's the Father's plan for the Son's glory. John chapter 5, verse 22 and 23. The Father does not judge anyone. Think about that for a moment. God the Father does not judge anyone. Passage goes on to say, but he's assigned all judgment to the Son. The Son judges everyone. Why? Well, so that all will honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. So it's the Father's plan. Judgment is the Father's plan for the Son 
that the Son would get glory, that He would get honor. That's why the Son is the judge. It's the Father's plan, and it's for the Son of Man alone. Look at verse 27, the same chapter. The Father has given the Son authority to exercise judgment. Why? Because He is the Son of Man. So as we look at Revelation 14, 14, we're supposed to behold the Son poised to carry out the Father's will for His own glory and for His own honor. But as we go on in the passage, Christ is going to be patient to wait for the Father's timing. Recall back in the book of Acts, the disciples asked Jesus, what would the timing be for the restoration of the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus responded to the disciples in chapter 1 that the times and the, and the times and the seasons are the Father's business, verse 7. It's the Father's business. And that fits with what we read in verse 15. The son has the sickle in his hand. Verse 15, another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, put in your sickle and begin to reap. For the hour to reap, the time to harvest. Young people, the word reap is about harvesting. It's about going and getting what you planted in the spring. The time to reap has come because the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. Now, some read that verse and really struggle because it seems that an angel is commanding the Son of God to do something. But the angel is simply a messenger from God. We just celebrated the Christmas season And we remember how the angels announced the birth of Christ to the shepherds. So just as the angels announced that to the shepherds, here an angel is sent to the Son to announce the time of judgment. He's just making an announcement because it's the Father's business when it comes to the times. What does the Son do? Well, the Son obeys the Father's will, and He reaps the earth when the time is ripe. Verse 16 So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. The earth was reaped. The harvest was gathered in. We heard harvest words back at the beginning of chapter 14, where we saw the 144,000 Jews who were standing with the Lamb. They were called the redeemed from the earth. And in verse 4, it calls them the first fruits to God. So it seems the harvest of the earth would be the rest of mankind on earth, whom the Son, Son gathers to Himself. What we see is that Christ is waiting on the time to judge. He is acting when the angel makes the announcement to Him. Brothers and sisters in the Lord, I just want you to reflect on that for a moment. It is quite a thought to think about the fact that the Almighty Son of God waits. It would seem if you're Almighty, you don't need to wait for anything. You're Almighty. He waits. And for us, waiting is really hard. Remember, Jesus Christ was tempted by the devil in the wilderness He was told that he could have a shortcut to receiving all the kingdoms of the world if Jesus would simply worship him. Jesus refused. The time for the kingdom had not yet come. Jesus refused. Yet even now, 
as Jesus is exalted to the right hand of the Father, he still waits. The full kingdom hasn't come. He waits. So, brothers and sisters in the Lord, we shouldn't think it strange when we're called to wait. The saints of Revelation are called to endure. Chapter 13, verse 10. Chapter 14, verse 12. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints. Jesus is our example of what it is to wait patiently, to endure. You see, today, the world uses Christ's name in their cursing, and they mock Him in their jokes. Yet the Son does not snap and say, I've had it with them. Let's get the kingdom and the judgment started. Instead, he waits. He suffers long. We need to see that and let that impact us as his servants. And if there's someone here who's not yet a Christian, when Christ is waiting, what this is affording is an opportunity to become part of his kingdom. He promised that one day he would come again and receive his own. So the good news is that by receiving Him, by confessing your sin and clinging to Him for forgiveness, you could be part of His kingdom. And there's a degree of urgency here. There's a reason that you need to turn to Christ. You need to trust in Christ. Because for for today He's waiting, but He is not going to wait forever. The time of harvest will come. And that, at that appointed time, we know that Christ is going to gather the righteous. That's the first point we saw in verses 14 through 16. Secondly, this morning, we see in verses 17 through 20 that Christ will destroy the wicked. Christ will destroy the wicked. The wicked will experience God's wrath. Look at verse 17. Another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. So Christ is going to use an angel to collect his enemies. And throughout this book, angels have been used by Christ to do his bidding. So, for example, in chapter 8, trumpets were given to seven angels, trumpets of judgment. The judgment came from Christ, but the angels were doing the work. And we can expect this kind of thing given what Christ said in the Gospels. Matthew chapter 13, verse 41 says this, the Son of Man Same reference we saw in verse 14. The Son of Man will send His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers. Yet those angels wait for the proper timing as well. Verse 18, another angel came out from the altar, and the angel who had authority over the fire, and he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth. For its grapes are ripe. So the point there is that the wicked are going to be gathered. The angel is going to gather the grapes. Verses 17 and 18. And in verses 19 through 20, the wicked are going to be crushed because the grapes will be trodden in the winepress of God's wrath. Look at verse 19. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. This is one of those times as we read that we need to think back to what this is talking about. Many of us are not familiar with what a wine press is. An ancient wine press is a large hole that is cut in the stone, and the grapes would be dumped in that large hole. 
And then the grapes would be crushed as people would step on them. Young people, that's what you see in your bulletin this morning. And the juices that would come from those grapes would then flow out a channel that's cut in the stone to a place where the juice would be collected. That's what a wine press was. But here we see that the wine press is something altogether different. And it tells us that this harvest is definitely not grapes. This is the wicked because they received the wrath of God. So we know this is not the saints, because the Bible tells us that the saints are not destined for the wrath of God, 1 Thessalonians 5, 9. The saints have trusted in Christ who delivers from the wrath to come. They have fled from the wrath to come. But the grape harvest instead will face God's wrath, because they haven't trusted in Jesus. And His wrath is going to be... experienced in a specific place. Look at verse 20. And the wine press was trodden outside the city. Now, Babylon, the city, is mentioned in verse 8, but this probably refers back to Jerusalem, chapter 11, 1 and 2. And this is supported also by other passages in the Scripture as well as other places in this book. So it may be worth us turning. Would you put a marker in Revelation and turn back to Joel. Turn back to Joel. You see Joel in the ref in the margin reference. Turn there and read with me in Joel chapter 3. Joel chapter 3 helps explain this. Explain the event that's taking place. Joel chapter 3 says, And behold, in those days and at that time, when I will restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem. This is a future time, and it is located in the Middle East, in Jerusalem. It says, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. I will enter into judgment with them there. On behalf of my people and my heritage, Israel. Now go down to verse 13 and 14. He says, Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. So in the Old Testament, we have reference to people being gathered together to this place and judgment described as a wine press, as the wrath of God. So what is previewed, what I should say, what is prophesied in Joel is then previewed in Revelation 14, and it's going to play out in the following chapters. So as you go back to Revelation, here is a string of passages that you can write in the margin of your Bible. First, write Revelation 16, verse 14. Revelation 16, 14. Talks about demonic spirits. They perform signs. These are going to go abroad into the kings of the whole world. What are they going to do? Verse 14, to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Look down to verse 16. They assemble them at the place that is in Hebrew called Armageddon. What's going to happen there? Turn to chapter 19, verse 11 and 15. 
We see Christ descend. I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. In righteousness, he judges and makes war. How is that described? Look at the end of verse 15. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. So that's what will happen. The nations will gather, and Christ will tread the winepress. And as we go back to chapter 14, the end of the chapter, the blood is going to flow. Verse 20 says this, The blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle, or 1,600 stadia, which is about 180 miles. Now, there are skeptics and non-literalist interpreters who read this passage and find it to be very problematic because a pool of blood that width and that height would require a human population that is far beyond the world's population. But please take careful note that the passage does not say a pool of blood that wide and that high. Wine presses don't overflow in every direction. They flow in one direction out of the vat. Remember how you looked at the screen? Or I'm sorry, you looked at the, the handout. You can even Google this to look at ancient wine presses. They had cut in the stone a channel. And it says that the blood flowed out of it. It flowed out. We'll say in one direction. What is that? Most likely, this is a river of blood, 180 miles long, that high of an unknown width. And if you want to be really mathematical about it, less than 500,000 people could supply what's needed for that size river. So this is very possible. But the picture is one of carnage caused by Christ, affected upon those who reject him. So what do we do with this portrait that John has given to us as we close? John has called us to behold the Son of Man, the one with the sickle in his hand, the one who will judge. And why does this passage fit in with the rest of the book? How do these two harvests fit in? Well, obviously, these are warnings. They're warnings, just as the preaching of Noah in his day was a warning of the flood. The trouble is that people then, as is now, don't listen to the warnings. They don't think that judgment is coming. They disregard that Christ is coming and that Christ is the one with the sickle in his hand. And instead, they live, they live lives for themselves, disregarding any kind of future judgment. And when people live for themselves, that makes for an unjust society. It's no surprise. World leaders and populations are unjust. Simple Examples would be the fact that the guilty so often go free, and those who are innocent are sentenced, whether it's by mistake or it's by malice, or consider the fact that evil is called good and good is called evil. We live in a world that is backward and broken. We live in a world that cries for justice, but the point is this, that justice comes by no other means than Christ alone. That's the only hope we have. And we, his saints, 
with those saints who are to come and with the saints of the churches of Asia Minor. We live in an unjust world. We live in a world that opposes us for our faith in Christ. The people in the churches of Smyrna and Pergamum died for their faith. And there are people around the world today, young people, who die for their faith every day for their faith in Christ Jesus. And as we look at this passage then, we see for certain that Christ will one day be exalted over all and He will put down His enemies. And knowing that for certain helps us realize that we need to endure today. No matter who opposes us, we need to endure because Christ will one day come. He will judge and He will rule and reign. And He promised that we'll be with Him. That's good news. Father, as we close, we ask that you would help us to see Christ arightly. He is indeed the Savior who in love came and shed his blood for the forgiveness of our sins. But he is also the one who comes to rule and reign. He is the judge. And he must be served. Those who rage against him are destroyed, but those who serve him will rule and reign with him. So, Father, we pray for those who don't yet serve him, that they would bow their knee and and come to trust him. We pray that we who do serve him would find great strength in this passage to continue on in serving you, knowing that Christ will come and he will set up the kingdom. We pray that he would come soon in Jesus' name. Amen.